United States started its first paratrooper platoon in 1940. Eventually, the Army Airborne Command would have a parachute school operating out of Fort Benning, Georgia, to train soldiers for combat jumps, the first of which occurred over North Africa in late 1942. It's among this first generation of paratroopers that an odd tradition arose, a phrase shouted out while leaping from the plane. Its origins are disputed. Some claim it came because a class of paratroopers had gone to see a movie before their very first jump, and they were inspired by a supposedly historical incident portrayed in it. Another claim is that it came from a song that was popular on the radio at the time. And Command at First was split on whether this tradition was a show of bravery or demonstrated a lack of discipline. Eventually, the 501st Parachute Infantry Regiment, the first army regiment of its kind, would incorporate this tradition into their insignia. Media outlets covering paratrooper activity would spread this tradition like verbal wildfire. And that's why today, whether it be from an airplane or a high dive, it's not unusual to hear someone about to take a plunge shout, Geronimo. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 70, Say Geronimo. Welcome back, everyone. Last week, we watched as the issues of the Chiricahua Reservation, raiding into Mexico and the ever-present greed of American settlers for new land, finally managed to destroy the delicate peace set up by Cochise, Tom Jeffords, and General Oliver Otis Howard. As part of that, San Carlos Indian agent John Clum, still not even 30, managed to maneuver himself into being the overseer for pretty much every Apache that had agreed to settle down. Quite chuffed with himself, the young agent couldn't see any of the problems that he himself was sowing. High on that list was, while he might think of himself as the caretaker of all the Apaches in Arizona, that wasn't entirely true. Only half of all the Chiricahua Apache that had been living on their former reservation had actually agreed to move to San Carlos. You'll recall that the Nednies under Geronimo and Wa, or Ja, or Wo, or Wu, I'm still trying to figure out the best pronunciation, had essentially pulled a bit from the Simpsons saying that, yeah, we just need to grab something and we'll be right back. Cue sounds of running downstairs, slamming doors, a car starting, and then the squeaky voiced teen saying, I don't think they're coming back. Even Pioncine, the very man who precipitated the crisis that had allowed for Clem's takeover, had managed to slip away despite being grievously injured. The reason Clum and others could be so self-congratulatory, however, is because the Chiricahua looked so divided and weak that they couldn't possibly pose a threat. Each individual band was making some hard decisions about how they wanted to live. The Jihenis were content to live at Ojo Caliente in New Mexico, but were seeing an influx of Badunkahi and Chaconan refugees who had fled from Clum, which could not mean good things, as we'll see before today is out. Meanwhile, the bulk of the remaining Badonkahi and Nedney bands were trying to live their traditional lifestyle, which meant no reservation 
and striking out of the desert like they have always done, despite the ramped up pressure in both the United States and Mexico. And finally, there was the main bulk of the Chaconans, who were trying to make do with their new land on the San Carlos Reservation. They settled on the site of Old Fort Goodwin, on the south side of the Gila River near modern Fort Thomas. Except, there was a reason the army had abandoned the post roughly five years beforehand. Located in the lowlands along the Gila, it was a hot and decidedly unhealthy place to live. Malaria was a constant problem, with the soldiers who had been stationed there routinely coming down with the disease. And it's not like the Chaconans didn't know about that either. Cochise himself once refused to go into Fort Goodwin because of its reputation. But with no other options open to him, his son Tassa led his people there. One band member would later describe it as a, quote, hot, bad place. There was no water fit to drink, no wood, no game, no shade. There was nothing but stickers and insects. It was the worst place in all the land claimed by the Apache, end quote. The same band member also related how Hua's son said that the Americans had put them there to die, and that was an assessment he agreed with. But you wouldn't know any of that from the reports Clum was sending back to his superiors in Washington, which said that the Chaconans had settled in nicely and he had no fear of any problems from them. But perhaps the agent could be forgiven for being a little starry-eyed. He was in love. Clum had met and courted a woman in Ohio whom he wished to marry, though he had to find a way to get there first. Originally, he asked the Indian Bureau for funds to travel back east to get hitched, but that was predictably shot down because, hey, these are government funds, remember? So he came up with another idea. Gathering two of his friends as investors, he devised something of a traveling sideshow that featured the Apache from his reservation. Their war dance had been a big hit in Tucson right before everything on the Chiricahua Reservation had gone down, so his thought was to take the act on the road and bring it to another level and take it to the big cities back east. Proceeds from ticket sales would pay back him and his friends and give him the cash to marry his lady love. Simple, right? After accounting for everyone under him, he selected 22 Apaches for this tour, including Taza and Eskimizan. The group started out at the end of July 1876 and gave their first three performances in St. Louis on September 8th. Unfortunately, this was also their last three performances as hardly anyone turned out to see the show. Clum and his friends were the producers of a giant flop. Undeterred, Clum and his entourage pushed on to Washington, D.C. to see the president, now almost a rite of passage for Amerindian leaders, but he was not home. So they toured the White House, met with the Commissioner of Indian Affairs, who also helpfully paid for their train ride home as the showbiz angle hadn't quite panned out, they took a cruise on the Potomac and even went to see a real circus. Now, all of this is mildly interesting at best, and it would hardly be worth mentioning except for one important detail. It rained on September 18th. 
and I mean it torrentially poured down. The poor Apache, used to the drier climate of the desert, were unprepared for the cold and the wet. Within a week, Tassa, the son of Cochise, caught pneumonia, and despite best medical efforts, he would die shortly afterward on September 26. Now, that's momentous, because it meant that Nietzsche, who was not yet 20, would take over leadership of his band. In a turbulent, changing world, leadership now rested on the shoulders of a young, relatively untested man. Incidentally, when he first heard the news, Nietzsche was devastated. Clum, after lingering back east with his new bride for several months, would come to see him just after New Year's 1877, only to find that Nietzsche and others blamed him for using what we today would call witchcraft to cause his brother's death. Iskimson was able to talk Nietzsche down from this, promising that Clum had done everything to help Tassa. And we shouldn't read too much into this suspicion. I didn't say it at the time, but right after Cochise died, Tassa also went on a literal witch hunt to see who had caused the great chief's death. Now happily married and back at his agency, the year 1877 would start off by pitting Clum against none other than arguably the most famous Amerindian in all of American history, and the inspiration for the paratrooper shout. That's right. It's finally time to talk about Geronimo. You may have noticed by now that Geronimo has popped up in cameo appearances several times in our story. He's actually been around for most of what we've talked about since the 1840s, but I waited to introduce him in full because until just about now, he really has been just a side character. The narrative has been driven forward by actual leading men, such as Cochise and Mangas Colorados. But since both of them have now left the story, it's time for the man whose name will become synonymous in popular culture with Apache resistance to take center stage. So, all right, Geronimo. Much of the early life of the famous renegade is still just guesswork, mainly because he didn't come into the forefront of anything until he was already in his 50s. His autobiography, written down by S.M. Barrett in 1906 through an interpreter, gives us a lot of insight, but still has a lot of questionable reliability. For example, Geronimo says that he was born in 1829 in a canyon in Arizona, but his biographer Robert M. Utley says that a birth date of 1823 and a birthplace of along the Upper Gila River near the Mogollon Mountains in New Mexico much better corresponds to the available evidence. He was born into the Bedonkahi band of the Chiricahua Apache to a father named Taslishim and a mother known only as Juana. His Apache name was Goyakla, meaning the one who yawns or yawner, depending on your preferred interpretation. His paternal grandfather was a chief named Mako, who oversaw the band during the Spanish Peace by Purchase era starting in the 1790s. And if you really want to jump in the Wayback Machine, you can go re-listen to episode 12 to learn more about that. Mako was considered a great leader who was mostly a man of peace, but still had shown his prowess in war. And though the two had never met, Geronimo was extremely proud of the memory of his grandfather. 
A footnote in Barrett's written autobiography of Geronimo states that Mako had been Anedni, and that his son, or Geronimo's father, Taslashim, had married into the Badankihi band, which is why he, nor Geronimo, were ever chiefs. However, Utley simply says that another man was chosen as chief after Mako. In either case, though, it didn't really matter because this is the same time that a powerful new figure was emerging among the Chiricahua, who was originally called Fuerte, but we know him better as Mongus Coloradas. Geronimo said that he had three brothers and four sisters, but in reality, he only had one full-blood sibling, an older sister. The Apache language did not clearly delineate between cousins and siblings, so while he was close to them and did consider them brothers and sisters, they were actually technically his cousins. His account of his earliest days are strikingly romantic and sound almost like scenes from a painting. He talks about rolling on the dirt floor of his father's home or being bundled in a cradle and carried on his mother's back. Quote, I was warmed by the sun, rocked by the winds, and sheltered by the trees as other Indian babies. End quote. From his mother in particular, he would learn about the Apache culture and religion, and he ascribes to her his knowledge of Usin, the chief deity that governed Apache life. His father taught him the stories of his ancestors and, quote, the pleasures of the warpath, end quote. Though, sadly, his father would die when he was around 10 from an unspecified illness. In accordance with tradition, Taslashim was buried in a cave, his horse killed, and the rest of his belongings given away. Though she was free to do so, his mother never remarried, and Geronimo would look after her for the rest of her life. Aside from the early loss of a parent, his life was typical for Apache boys of the time, including games that stressed stamina, strength, and stealth, and a whole host of ceremonies as he came of age. If you want, we covered those back in episode 33, when we took a long, hard look at the Apacheria. There are two things I want to point out from his youth. The first is Barrett said he learned how to cut arrowheads or bullets out of warriors, which he says is the source behind Geronimo sometimes being labeled a medicine man. Though that contradicts the second thing I want to touch on, which is the Apache idea of power. And that's power with a capital P. This is such a cultural concept that I apologize for butchering it here with my feeble attempts to understand it. Quite simply, the Apache idea of power is just that, a power given to an Apache by some sort of animal or an inanimate object or a vision or maybe Usen himself. The power could be inherent or something an Apache sought, and it could be good or bad and included a whole spectrum of uses. In the case of Geronimo specifically, he is said to have had the power to heal through repeating incantations. Utley says that he would perform curing ceremonies in plain view of anyone who wished to watch, which is also an explanation of why he is often called a medicine man. However, Geronimo never explicitly told people what his powers were, though his followers claimed to have seen several of them. One of his most loyal followers said that Geronimo could make it rain, and more importantly, he could delay the dawn, so his warriors would always be in position before the day started. 
His most famous power, however, was a revelation that no bullet would ever kill him. Though Utley points out that a close associate says that Geronimo never expressly said this, but didn't stop his followers from assuming it. While in his youth, Geronimo also met Wa, and I think that is the pronunciation I'm going to go with, Wa, who was visiting from the Nedni and who would eventually marry Geronimo's cousin. Though he possessed a playful personality and a very pronounced stutter, Wa was, in Utley's words, a military genius. Roughly the same age, Geronimo and Wa would frequently collaborate and be intimate friends up until the latter's death in 1883. Geronimo went through the typical process to become a full-fledged warrior, a highly ceremonial process that we covered back in episode 33. After that, he was free to marry, and he chose as his companion a woman named Alope, of whom we know extremely little. She was a good wife, Geronimo would later recall, but she was never strong. We followed the traditions of our fathers and were happy. Three children came to us, children that played, littered, and worked as I had done. During this time, we know very little about his life, except that he was probably raiding down in Mexico after the peace-by-purchase policy failed in the wake of Mexican independence. He also followed Mangus Colorados and Cochise in the wake of the various massacres by John Johnson and James Kirker, which we covered back in episode 18. An 1843 ration rule at Corralitos in Mexico is also the first time that we find record of the name Geronimo, which he would use for the remainder of his life. There is some debate about how he acquired the name and its origin, but it's possible it simply came from the Hispanic version of the name Jerome. He would rise to some prominence for his part in the 1846 Revenge-Fueled Battle of Galeana, which I briefly talked about in episode 34, but Udley points out that while Geronimo had some good leadership abilities, he was never on the same level as Mangus Colorados and Cochise. So, for now, he remained just an outstanding warrior. The course of his life changed in 1851. An attempted ambush of the Apache by Mexican forces in January had turned into a decided defeat at a place called Poso Edionalo. Several months later, vengeful Sonoran troops crossed into Chihuahua and struck at the rancherias near Janos. Geronimo relates that, while returning to their homes in the late afternoon, Apache warriors were met by the survivors. He rushed home only to find that his mother, wife, and three children had all been killed. This cemented in Geronimo a burning hatred and drive for revenge that could not be sated. I had lost all, he said. I was never again contented in our quiet home. True, I could visit my father's grave, but I had vowed vengeance upon the Mexican troopers who had wronged me, and whenever I came near his grave or saw anything to remind me of my former happy days, my heart would ache for revenge against Mexico. From then on, his autobiography is full of excursions against Mexico with whomever he could persuade to come with him. Sometimes he won, sometimes he didn't, but always he wanted to kill Mexicans. By 1860, now 37, Geronimo had married two other wives and had another child. 
We find him as part of the Bascom affair, after Mangas Colorados and others gathered to Cochise's call following Cut the Tent, and he undoubtedly took part in the attack on the American stagecoaches in the subsequent days. He continued to raid heavily into Mexico, and once, while being pursued into the Santa Rita Mountains near present-day Green Valley by Mexican soldiers, his third wife and their child were killed. Geronimo would stay in Arizona when Mangas Colorados went to ask for peace in Pinos Altos, which ultimately resulted in his death. We covered that back in episode 42. After Mangas Colorados was gone, Geronimo would fall in with Hua and his Nednis, though his movements are quite hard to trace as he would not appear by name in any American records until the 1870s. We do know that in the 1860s and 1870s, he married at least three more times. When Howard created the Chiricahua Reservation, Hua and Geronimo and their followers set up camp there, though they were some of the principal instigators of the raiding that would eventually cause the downfall of the reservation. In fact, Tom Jeffords would have a run-in with Geronimo where he had to go and claim a Mexican boy that the soon-to-be infamous renegade had stolen from south of the border. He and Wa would flee the reservation after Cochise's edict of no more raiding went into effect in late 1873, but coordinated efforts by Mexican soldiers would drive them back to the reservation following Cochise's death. And that brings him more or less up to where we are in the main narrative. Since he and Wa had tricked Clum and went on the lam, they instantly went back down to Mexico and reverted to their old ways. At this point, however, Geronimo parted from Wa and came up into Arizona, where he and the men with him raided into the Sonoida Valley. This was a bad move on his part because the raiding came to the attention of Colonel August Kautz, who had replaced Crook, and who now dispatched Lieutenant John A. Rucker to lead a punitive campaign. Guided by the now infamously good Apache scouts, this group found Geronimo's rancheria on January 9, 1877, and fell on it in brutal fashion, even managing to capture one of Geronimo's nephews. Sporting this bloody nose, Geronimo opted to fall back to the Ojo Caliente Reservation, where the Chiheni chief Victorio welcomed him. Not everyone in the band was excited to see this renegade who couldn't stop himself from attacking Mexicans at any turn, but Victorio was sure it would be fine and gave Geronimo permission to stay. He should have listened to the dissenters, because no sooner had Geronimo come than he went out on a retaliatory strike against Arizona for the ransacking of his rancheria. Over the course of two days, Geronimo and the men with him killed nine people and captured a hundred head of horses while sweeping through the Sonoida and Santa Cruz Valleys in February 1877. Then, with some audacity, he returned to Ojo Caliente and asked to receive rations for the time that he had been absent. You know, stealing horses and killing people in another state. But that was a big mistake. While having a little conniption fit because the agency wouldn't give him rations for his time away, Geronimo was spotted and recognized by an army officer who quickly informed his superiors of the renegade's location. With a speed almost unheard of in bureaucratic circles, word of Geronimo's location came down to Clum, who was also ordered to ride to Ojo Caliente and arrest him and his followers. 
Of course, for Klum, this was a golden opportunity to bring more Apache under his jurisdiction. He spent a month preparing for the inevitable encounter, during which time he fell into a bitter dispute with Kautz. There was no love lost between the two, especially given Klum's habitual disdain for army officers. In fact, Klum and Governor Safford had for some time been behind a smear campaign against Kautz, accusing him of not being proactive enough in fighting Amerindians. Klum claimed that the new Apache scouts Kautz had recruited were getting drunk at Fort Apache instead of being out in the field. These accusations were unfounded and unfair, and one historian says that Klum was actually sore about how the scouts and their families at Fort Apache, and thus not under his stewardship, were prospering. Klum decided that he had already burned the bridge with Kautz, so he began writing to the Department of New Mexico for military aid in snaring Geronimo and the other raiders. He would even leave Arizona without bothering to wait for Kautz, and would be at Fort Bayard in New Mexico with 100 of his Apache policemen in mid-April. Once there, he decided to do the most Klum-like thing possible, and wired his superiors in Washington for permission to remove not only the renegades, but all Apache from Ojo Caliente to San Carlos. Two days after sending this request, Washington agreed to this massive extension of Clum's authority. With that, the Indian agent was really ready to roll. Without bothering to wait for the cavalry that he himself had requested join up with his force, Clum marched out to within 20 miles of Ojo Caliente. He would only take 22 of his police officers and march into the agency office on the evening of April 20th. Later that night, under the cover of darkness, the remaining 80 officers would creep in to hide in an adjacent building. So on April 21st, 1877, Clum sent a message to Geronimo, who was camped roughly three miles away, to come in and talk. Obviously, Geronimo didn't suspect a thing. According to his autobiography, the delegation from Clum didn't say what they wanted, but they seemed friendly enough, so Geronimo and his followers decided to go hear what they had to say. Besides, it was the monthly ration day at the agency anyway, so they were heading in that direction already to pick up supplies. With Geronimo came about 50 people, including leaders of the Badonkihi, Cheheni, and Chaconan bands. Clum came out to meet them, his hand resting casually on his hip above his 45 caliber revolver. There are several versions for how the confrontation went, with Clum himself publishing a few that got more hyperbolic each time. He, of course, made sure to mention that he promised that they would not be harmed if they just listened to him. And this is where things turned tense. With his usual lack of tact, Clum bluntly informed Geronimo that he was under arrest. And we can all forgive Geronimo for scoffing at this and for pointing out to this incredibly young, bald man that he should do his math again. Clum had 22 men with him. Geronimo had more than double that. According to author and historian Paul Andrew Hutton, Geronimo is said to have told Clum, quote, You talk very brave, but we are not going to San Carlos with you, and unless you are very careful, you and your Apache police will not go back to San Carlos either. Your bodies will stay here at Ojo Caliente to make food for the coyotes. End quote. 
And it's about here that Clum gave the signal by touching the brim of his hat and the remaining 80 Apache police sprang out of hiding surrounding Geronimo's group. Of course, I would be remiss if I didn't say that some historians don't think a standoff or exchange happened at all, but that Clum gave the signal as soon as Geronimo arrived to talk. But with the tables now effectively turned, Clum singled out Geronimo specifically for having run away from the Chiricahua reservation instead of coming to San Carlos as he had promised. This accusation did not sit well with the renegade, who would say in his autobiography that he never considered himself under the thumb of those at Apache Pass, and that he didn't see why they could tell him where to live. Hutton again has a more dramatic account, with Geronimo supposedly yelling at Clum, quote, You are the false white eyes who came to the Chiricahua Reservation a year ago and broke the peace treaty made by the great chief and Taglito and the one-armed general. Do not talk to me about breaking treaties, you and your sick brain. End quote. Clum's police force instantly stepped in to take Geronimo's knife and rifle. He and three others deemed to have taken part in recent raids were instantly taken to the local blacksmith shop and clapped in irons and then thrown in the local jail. From that vantage point, he watched the next day, April 22nd, as three companies of the 9th Cavalry rode into the reservation. These were surprised to find the arrest of Geronimo as a fait accompli, seeing as they had told Clum exactly when they were going to arrive. But the young Indian agent, either fearing the appearance of soldiers would spook the Apache, or supremely confident in his own abilities as well as that of his police force, had decided to plow ahead without military backup. But since they were here now, Clum did have a use for the intimidating presence of the soldiers. On April 24th, Clum held talks with the Apache leaders and told them they had to move to San Carlos. This was not really a choice. They could either go or try to resist or flee while surrounded by soldiers. Not surprisingly, they chose not to resist though they did happen to store some weapons in a nearby cave for the future. On May 1st, 1877, more than 450 Chiricahua Apache, mostly Badonkahi and Cheheni, started their long march to San Carlos. Some would bolt and others would catch smallpox en route, but most everyone made it to San Carlos by May 20th. Here, Geronimo would be thrown into yet another guardhouse where he would sit and stew. Clum was riding high, now having direct control of all the Apache bands west of the Rio Grande. He would also write triumphantly, quote, Thus was accomplished the first and only bona fide capture of Geronimo the Renegade. End quote. Yet for all his boasting, he could not see what he was actually doing. The Chiheni living at Ojo Caliente were contented to do just that, and to not cause a fuss for anyone. Victorio, the band's leader, had started talking about living peacefully there back in the 1860s. He had welcomed Geronimo to the reservation, but he and his people were peaceful. Surely he thought the White Eyes wouldn't punish him and his people for the mistakes made by other Apache. But now? Now they felt betrayed by the government. And angry. Really angry. 
if Klum hadn't tried to remove them, it's possible that piece could have survived without any issues. And furthermore, Geronimo always remembered his arrest, and for the rest of his life would be exceedingly skittish about American officials who wanted to talk, as we'll see in coming episodes. What Klum had done, in essence, is lay the groundwork for the next series of conflicts that were to come. So join me next week as we wrap up the Apache Wars in the 1870s, talk about Geronimo's first breakout, and finally see Klum walk away from the reservation he spent so much time building. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Goodbye.